Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Tanya Kant, who is a lecturer in media and cultural studies at the University of Sussex, about her new book, Making It Personal, Algorithmic Personalization, Identity in Everyday Life. So welcome to the podcast. Uh, Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. It's great to have you on to talk about um, a book that really sort of explains how kind of our, our current world works. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a great book for anyone who kind of wants to understand what's going on in society right, right now. And the place to kick off with the book is, is the title, really, um, and, and this term algorithmic personalization, which I think is something that, um, you know, virtually all of us who've got computers, smartphones, who use the internet – will be um, familiar with in terms of having experienced it, but maybe not familiar with um, both, you know, the, t- the terminology and also, you know, what's going on underneath it. So, so what are you talking about when you talk about algorithmic personalization? Yeah, I think you're completely right in that um, many web users might be familiar with the idea that some component of their experience on the web is being personalized because of things like cookie notices that will say, oh, do you mind if we track you so that we can offer you a personalized experience? So um, what is it to me is I think the easiest way of kind of summarizing it is it's Algorithmic personalization is a, is the practice of attempting to like computationally know uh, a user or an individual in some way, um, so their tastes, their preferences, their needs, or their identity categorizations, um, and the comp- that computational knowing is enacted in order to deliver some kind of content or product that is deemed to be individually relevant to a particular individual. Um, so yeah, it's a computational process of personalizing some element of a web user's online experience and like I can give examples of that um, if it helps but yeah I mean I think some of the most um, well-known examples would be if you've ever gone online and looked for a certain pair of shoes or something um, you may have then experienced the, uh, the that pair of shoes being delivered to you around the web in a form of advertising. So we've got personalized advertising or things like recommendation systems, Amazons or Netflixes um, that provide yeah personalized recommended content. And that all sounds like totally wonderful, and yeah. you know something that makes these network better, and individuals get products and services that um, that they might want. And, you know, I'm obviously being kind of like jokey with that because one of the things the book tries to do is, is say, actually, what sounds like a fairly kind of benign process of tailoring the internet to individual, as you say, you know, tastes and preferences actually is a massive problem, particularly in terms of 
um, the way commercial interests dominate the internet. So I guess the question that comes from that is like, what's your sort of uh, critical perspective on this? What's the kind of problem um, with algorithmic personalization? Yeah, uh, good question, because you're right in that it, it does sound really beneficial for web users. And in some, in many ways, it is beneficial, you know, things like not having to fill out the same registration forms um, online are a result of um, algorithmic personalization. So there are real immediate benefits to the user. Um, But there's like two key issues that aren't necessarily problems in themselves, but I think we can talk about to start to unpick the kind of individualized and societal problems that might come with this kind of drive to personalize web experience online. And one of them is, firstly, when we think about personalization on the web, it kind of different differs to other types of personalized media or even personalized kind of forms of um, buying something. So you could have your shoes might be personalized or your phone case might be personalized. Even healthcare and education are sometimes personalized to individuals. But when we talk about these um, offline, if you have, if you will, kind of forms of personalization, it tends to be the individual themselves that is the key leader in in whatever is being personalized. You're the person that makes those decisions. When we talk about algorithmic personalization online, it is computational systems that are the leader in deciding what is made personal and at what moment and how rather than the user themselves. So, you know, Facebook's newsfeed is a good example of this. Although you will have friends and you might have liked certain pages um, that will determine what you see on your Facebook newsfeed. Actually, um, algorithms play just as important role as you do in deciding what order they're in and also which kind of posts make it to your newsfeed and which ones remain invisible to you because you don't actually see everything um, that your friends or that the pages that you've liked have uh, have produced, for example. Um, the other, so so yeah, algorithms kind of deciding for us what is personal and what isn't is a big problem for me. And the other big problem, and I think it's like it might, it's in some ways it's quite obvious, but it's also we don't really emphasize it enough. I would say is that yes, personalization is about providing um, beneficial experience to web users, but that's not the key point of it. I would I would argue the key point of personalization is so that companies and platforms can collect data, personal data, on users, um, their taste, their preferences, their gender, their age, their location, the list goes on. This information is used to personalise our experience, but predominantly it's used by platforms that don't charge users to use their services, and it's used in a way to generate profit. So personalization isn't just some kind of beneficial thing that happens to be on the web right now. It's the key underlying economic drive of the web. If you don't pay for a platform with your money, you're more than likely paying through your data. And the way that that data is framed as beneficial to you is through personalization. But in actuality, it's beneficial to both you and the platform. And that's how they're generating profit. There's other problems, but I can maybe, yeah expand if you want or pick up on on something you'd said there actually which is 
I guess one of the things we're really familiar with in terms of um, the kind of critiques uh, that we associate with the internet now is this idea of, you know, well, the algorithm is um, uh, kind of driven by particular biases. You know, it it has uh, sexism, racism, almost, you know, kind of programmed into it. Um, The, these things aren't kind of neutral at all. And I guess, you know, the critique you've outlined there of the problems of commercial use and commercial control um, of people's data go hand in hand with, I suppose, one of the things you kind of gesture to in the book is, is the idea of a kind of like ideal user um, or, or the idea that there's a, you know, a particular um, vision of um, an ideal type user um, that is going to be the person um, that is constituted by this algorithmic personalization. And I suppose that maybe is, is you know, another layer of, of critique over and above the commercial um, worries. There's the worry of who actually is this ideal user that is being constituted by the algorithm. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, good question. Tricky one to unpick there because um, you're right that the ideal user is this kind of um, figure uh, or like abstract notion of that developers have classically used to picture who will be using their software. Um, now, the uh, the kind of critiques that you're talking about when we think of the ideal user, they they are quite long standing, and people like Sophia Noble and Lisa uh, Nakamura have pointed out that actually, when we think about this ideal abstract user, it tends to be built on assumptions. Um, that reinforce a normative idea of what the user looks like. So um, when developers are kind of picturing their ideal user in in their heads, they might think of them as without an identity, you know, kind of a blank page, if you will. But that's not, in fact, um, how these things uh, play out in real life. So... Uh, yeah, Noble's work especially points out that the ideal user is often assumed to be white, male, middle class, heterosexual, um, and cisgendered in ways that uh, work to marginalise or um, even reinforce existing notions of racism or structural inequality. The reason it gets complicated when we think about personalization is that on paper, personalization seems to get rid of the notion of the ideal user because we don't need to imagine who the user is anymore. Through the magic of data, you can find out who they are. So technically, when we think about personalization, um, we shouldn't have to uh, rely on an assumed abstract user. You should be able to go out and see, well, this is this user who's using this software at this time for this need. The Issues with that don't necessarily come from that idea, but they come from the fact that, as I said before, personalization isn't just about being beneficial to the user. It's about generating profit for platforms. And because of that, we get a new host of social problems that arise from this computational commercialized need to know different platforms because like um, Skegg's work, for example, points out that Facebook is kind of 
creating a new form of classed uh, inequality by um, valuing different types of users through their personalization, put through their data um, as either like lower class or higher class in ways that, again, uh, reinforce and perpetuate existing socioeconomic inequalities. How does this all work in practice? Um, you, you, you've given a practical example with with Facebook there, but one of the, uh, I suppose, kind of core um, contributions the book is trying to make is to show how all of these um, broader concerns about um, how the net works function both, you know, in terms of kind of modes of resistance, but also in terms of um, everyday practices and actually, you know, everyday life is in, is in the title of the book. So I wonder if we could take um, a few of the um, kind of empirical um, chapters in turn. Um, I, I was particularly intrigued by this uh, thing which I wasn't actually aware of uh, called ghostery, um, which I think is, is quite a nice example of sort of um, attempts at resistance, but also kind of, you know, complicity and, and kind of, you know, co-option into algorithmic personalization. So it'd be good to hear about that as uh, as an example of, of what you've been talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it is a good way in to start to think about um, why we should pay attention to algorithmic personalization, not just at the level of kind of social and collective action, but at the level of everyday life so individualized lived experiences which is basically what the book is trying to get at so um as you said there's sort of some concrete case studies and examples in the book of technologies that somehow relate to algorithmic personalization and the book's kind of goal is to um interview uh different uh users of these different technologies in order to sort of start to understand how different identity subjectivities are entangled in personalization systems in different ways. Um, so when we think about how it works, ghostry is an interesting one because it's not an example of algorithmic personalization in itself. As you say, it's a form of resisting some of the mechanisms that are related to personalization. So ghostry is an online tracker blocker. Um, what it is essentially a privacy tool it's a free privacy tool that you can download, um, stick on your browser, and it will help you uh, block trackers that are tracking you online. So, yeah, it can block around 2,000 commercial, commercial data trackers, um, and it blocks them from collecting personal data on you as you go about the web. So, um, yeah, it's for privacy-concerned web users. And my kind of... The reason that I use it as an example is because I wanted to understand how privacy-concerned web users don't just think about privacy itself, but the end game of this kind of privacy-invading practice of data tracking is not really enacted in these commercial settings to watch people. It's not really about disciplinary state surveillance. It's about trying to generate profit from your actions. So what I was interested in was asking people about not privacy itself per se, but um, the end game as I see it, which is to personalize their web experiences. Um, the reason that I thought that was an interesting thing to ask people about is because these privacy tools don't often talk about personalization as the problem. They talk about surveillance in itself as the problem. So yeah, um, 
that's kind of an example of of yeah of one of the the case studies in the chapter. I mean, maybe the um, exact opposite, or the you know um, the much less kind of resistance based um, example um, is something like Spotify and the way people can kind of link Spotify to uh, things like their Facebook feed. So you, you talk about auto posting yeah. um, where, it, you know, I suppose almost kind of like quite innocently users will link up various platforms, but actually this generates um, both, you know, value um, for the platforms, but also has, you know, quite, problematic impacts for for the users and i was really struck actually by um how people talked about you know their kind of cultural tastes their musical interests about you know visibility um kind of guilty pleasures forms of shame um you know forms of, of kind of public display um all bunched together in a way that is a very different um example when compared with ghostery where you're uh, participants were like, you know, much more kind of on it about what's going on. What can I stop? How am I being tracked? Um, so it'd be good to hear about that kind of counter example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it really works well, I think, as a counter example, because as you were saying with in the book with the ghostery users, their kind of uh, positionality towards personalization was one of like wanting to defend their identity against um, the kind of dehumanizing threat of data and, and, you know, for, for good reason, but the, the, the kind of conversations that, that I had with those users were tensions around knowledge production of, of never really feeling on top of your data trail. You know, there was this kind of, uh, epistemic anxiety is what I call it in the book around, um, never really knowing how personalizations work. Even if you did know a lot about them, you couldn't know enough about your own data trail to feel on top of it because they're so wrapped in is 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 like these are very closely guarded industry secrets about the exactitudes of how personalization algorithms actually work with the um facebook auto pasting chapter the web users and the facebook users that i interviewed here their set of concerns around personalization was really quite different and as you were saying it was around the ways in which algorithms through these systems can reshape or intervene or disrupt our identity practices online. So I use the the example of Facebook's auto-posting apps as a key example here about how algorithms can intervene in personal identity performance itself. Um, so just to clarify what is an auto-post, it's the act of an algorithm um posting an, an a status update onto Facebook on your behalf. So this practice is not very well um it's not widely practiced practiced now because Facebook kind of realized that web users really don't like it when an app posts on their behalf. But a few years ago um it was quite common to if you wanted to use a game like Candy Crush, or if you wanted to connect your Spotify account to your Facebook account, or if you wanted to use an app like Map My Run, you might have to um, agree or you might unintentionally agree to allow 
that app to post on your behalf. So, you know, you'd have something like, I've just scored a million points on Candy Crush or Spotify might start disclosing your guilty pleasure songs to your Facebook newsfeed. So um, the chapter was kind of um, asking people how they negotiated this this practice of, of an algorithm kind of posting a form of identity expression. And yeah, um, we there was some really interesting stuff for me came through around the, uh, the unintentional disclosure of what was seen as sort of embarrassing identity articulations. So we had um, uh, one of the participants kind of talked about his Facebook, his Spotify accidentally disclosing that he loved listening to Nickelback to his Facebook friends. And then the, the kind of fallout of that being that he had to like other, he had to listen to and like other songs um, in order to kind of convince his friends that actually his identity articulations weren't quite as, um, you know, embarrassing. And that that was his words as they seem to be. So for me, you know, we talk about privacy and we talk about data, we talk about state surveillance, but we don't talk that much about these more subtle everyday identity practices. And it might not seem like a big deal, like an algorithm um posting a Nickelback song on your behalf, but actually it does intervene in identity practices in a way that kind of raise questions around social disciplining, around how we might shame each other and how algorithms in their pursuit to um, commodify identity have these unintended consequences of disciplining or shaming individuals in their identity practice. I mean, it's a lovely... uh kind of online meeting of, uh, of, of Bourdieu and Foucault in some ways, you know, the idea that like listening to Nickelback has consequences yeah. <laughs> and, you know, um, people shouldn't forget that in their, uh, in their kind of, <laughs> of, of platforms. Um, the, the, the final example. You <laughs> well, yeah, we, we should say that. Yeah. Or the, or, or the various other kind of, Metal country uh, rock bands are, are available. Um, the final example you've got is, is Google Now, which I suppose is um, almost kind of like the, the ultimate version of uh, the trends you, you've been analysing in the book, where it's specifically about you know helping people out. Uh, you know that vision of personalisation we talked about earlier, where personalisation will basically you know kind of make your life and your experience of, of the net much easier and, you know, much more kind of tailored um, to your needs. Google now is all about that. But actually the experience is, is like pretty kind of ambivalent and there are big issues with, with trust and, uh, and privacy. So, so what's the kind of the story of Google now? Yeah. Um, again, I, yeah, moving on to Google now was interesting from coming from um, auto posting this time because with auto posting, identity practice became much more about a struggle for autonomy between algorithm and user. Um, with the Google Now case study, I intentionally asked um, some freshers students to download Google Now. Now, now Google Now is known as just Google Assistant. Um, it's a mobile phone app. It comes preloaded on a lot of Android phones. And when it was rolled out, Google's mobile assistant, as it's called now, the its tagline was the information you need throughout your day 
before you even ask. So it was really underpinned by this like very clear example of like, we are going to offer you the ultimate personalized experience. You're not going to have to do anything. Algorithms are going to literally give you the information that you want and need and desire before you've even asked. It's like this. And like, you know, the kind of the presumption of mind reading there is quite, <laughs> is, is quite um, profound in some ways, but uh, yeah, I'd talk slightly more about that in the book to go back to the, case study and the participants themselves so we had this sort of what I see as a very um a very like strong example of personalization that I wanted people that had no strong feelings about it either way to sort of play around with so what we did was it was a very small in-depth sample of participants uh it was just a handful of of uh students who were um who signed up to the research project and were asked to download Google Now onto their phones or activate it and follow it um, and use it for six weeks. And basically we had a, a, a six-week study where we would go and meet up and I would interview them and see how Google was um, predicting their day, if it was doing so um, in a successful way for these these participants and what kind of affordances and limitations this had. I think you used the word trust when you were talking about this chapter. And one of the things that really came out in this chapter for me was that even though these participants didn't have that much investment in this app, you know, they were only using it because basically I'd asked them to, was that they really trusted Google to be able to personalize their experiences for them. And they really trusted Google to do this, even as Google consistently failed to offer personalized recommendations that they were impressed with. So um, the kind of general takeaway from the participants in all of our focus groups was like, it hasn't really showed me anything. It hasn't really showed me the information that I need throughout my day. Google was more interested in showing the weather in their local, um, in their, you know, their local area, which they already knew, and commutes. To work that they didn't use um, and suggestions for restaurants that they never went to. So there was this kind of um, tension between the predictive promises that Google was offering and the and the actual kind of embrace of those promises in that this, the, the participants thought they were really cool, but they were useless um, and they didn't actually take them up. So we had this kind of but their trust in Google to be able to do this stuff was really quite strong. So again, we've got the, uh, there was a really nice tension between how the ghostery users kind of articulated their engagement with personalization as compared to these um, younger, potentially less privacy concerned students. I mean, it's quite a nice example of um, almost a, a kind of not middle way between the two, you know, corporate positions and, and then academic critiques. But I, I guess, you know, back again, back to the title, you know, that sense of how um, algorithmic personalization plays out in everyday life, often through through ambivalence more than anything else. And, and I'm particularly interested of, as we wrap up to hear about not, not so much the kind of the um, – the future um, of algorithmic personalization because, you know, it's with us and, and, you know, the book makes it clear that a lot of this stuff is basically how the internet works now and how platforms 
um, can function and how they're kind of, you know, economically uh, viable as well. But I'm quite interested in, I guess, the way that personalization has um, become maybe harder to spot, has, has disappeared, how it's taken on, um, you know, kind of, I suppose, new new modes or, or um, new kind of sets of, of online practices as people are, are both, you know, kind of more aware, but also kind of like more more ambivalent about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's to kind of think about this ambivalence around personalization is really interesting as you kind of mentioned there, it's not that personalization is going away. It's in fact that it's just being normalized more and more as the standard way of accessing the web. Um, you know, Google doesn't say that Google search is personalized anymore. It just assumes that everyone knows that it is. It's not completely personalized, but it um, it heavily draws on elements of personalization whenever you use Google search, for example. Um the ambivalence and the ambiguity for users themselves around personalization um, is a is an interesting kind of theme for me because uh, it comes from the epistemic uncertainties of how personalization works, what is being personalized for you at what moment in time. These are like long-standing issues and for the ghostery chapter, I interviewed people that whose technological um, knowledge about data tracking really far outstripped my own. They taught me a lot about um, data tracking. But what they did also emphasize over and over again, and this was all the participants, is that you could never be completely sure about how personalization works. So we are left in this kind of um, this perpetual field of ambiguity and ambivalence, and I argue in the in the conclusion that I think I'm not I'm not for really keen on joining calls for more knowledge about data tracking and personalization. You know, uh, classically scholars have kind of said what we need is we need to know more. We don't know enough about data tracking. Users need to be more aware of it. Now, with the wake of the um, uh, the GDPR. Um, and the their kind of legal obligation now to put cookie notices um, on websites where in Europe we can't we can't really say anymore that users aren't aware that they're being tracked. I think increasingly and there's there's evidence from like Ofcom and lots of other places that users are increasingly aware, but they they are ambivalent nonetheless. So for me, I think that. Um, instead of talking about more awareness or more knowledge, it would be useful to start thinking about algorithmic power instead. And the way that I start to think about this is through the idea of algorithmic capital. Um, so instead of trying to get on top of your data trail, if we start to see ourselves as kind of tacticians um, that are pitted against platforms that have a lot more knowledge than us. So they are strategies, if we're talking about in De Sertu's, um framework of tactics versus strategies, that it, it becomes more about not what you know, but how you deploy that knowledge. So it's a kind of form of Bordeauxian cultural capital, capital to me, but instead of using our capital against other users, which is something I talk about in chapter five of the auto-posting chapter, 
we are deploying our algorithmic capital against platforms instead, which is for me different from like knowing more because yeah, there's, there is no such thing as knowing everything about data tracking data uh, produces knowledge about itself. That means that that's not possible. So yeah, that's what I, that's what I think about ambiguity is that we should be becoming algorithmic tacticians rather than sort of algorithmic experts. And is this the kind of work you're going to be doing um, in the future, um, or are you, you know, as you were saying, you know, we don't maybe we don't need more knowledge, um, so you're going to kind of switch to another area of, uh, of research. What what's kind of next for your um, your work? Uh, I think there's a lot more to be done around um, algorithms before we sort of um, yeah move on. So I'm definitely still interested in pursuing different forms of uh, personalization. I'm specifically looking at um, gender targeting online at the moment um, and the firstly from a regulatory perspective um, and thinking about the the, no, the non-existence of, of regulation around targeting. And obviously this has become a big topic in the wake of things like the Cambridge Analytica scandal. But um, even from the... Uh, the side of just targeted advertising itself, there's still remarkably little regulation about who gets targeted and how and what you can target them for, um, especially when it comes to gender. So I'm looking at um, fertility uh, advertising and gender targeting and thinking about the ways in which um, women especially might be uh, have a kind of burden of algorithmic constitution put on them in everyday life although there's different types of um, burdens that are unequally spread between different types of especially marginalized identities so yeah it's a it's an interesting question for me but yeah I think there's definitely more to be said about the ways in which algorithms value us um, not for surveillance and not even for commercial purposes per se but also they value us as cultural beings in ways that intervene uh in our everyday web experiences and again that it's just really difficult to find out exactly how that works and i've been trying for the last four years and (laughs) still um struggle to get statistics on um targeted advertising numbers in certain contexts 